0: chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you won't be punished. The Holy Spirit will give you life that comes from Christ Jesus and will set you free from sin and death. The law of Moses cannot do this because our selfish desires make the law weak. But God set you free when he sent his own son to be like us sinners and to be a sacrifice for our sin. God used Christ's body to condemn sin. He did this so that we would do what the law commands by obeying the spirit instead of our own desires. People who are ruled by their desires think only of themselves. Everyone who is ruled by the Holy Spirit thinks about spiritual things. If our minds are ruled by our desires, we will die. But if our minds are ruled by the Spirit, we will have life and peace. Our desires fight against God because they do not and cannot obey God's laws. If we follow our desires, we cannot please God. You are no longer ruled by your desires, but by God's Spirit who lives in you. People who don't have the Spirit of Christ in them don't belong to Him, but Christ lives in you. So you are alive because God has accepted you, even though your bodies must die because of your sins. Yet God raised Jesus to life, God's Spirit now lives in you, and He will raise you to life by His Spirit. My dear friends, we must not live to satisfy our desires. If you do, you will die. I read a little bit too much. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You can never read too much. (laughs) Well, we have been uh, thinking together this winter uh, about a real challenge that Christians face. Uh, We believe two things that we hold in tension, and one of those things is that God's Word, we just read, is very important to us, it's inspired, it's the center of what we believe, we want to hold on to it, we want to protect it, we want to preserve it, we want to interpret it faithfully. On the other hand, we want to be unified. We understand that Christians interpret the word differently sometimes. And so how do you hold on to the word and then at the same time uh, pursue unity? Well, what I'm going to do for the next couple of sermons is uh, give you little snapshots from uh, church history. I almost said Instagram, but you'd figure out I was a poser because I don't even know what that is. Um, so I'm just going to use the 70s archaic language of a Kodak snapshot and um, and, and give you little glimpses from church history about how the churches have struggled to do this. One of the things you'll find is that uh, for the next couple hundred years, from about the 13th to the 17th, uh, the church really swings hard on the truth side. And then in the 17th, the debate shifts, and uh, the, they, they start to swing onto the uh, questioning whether there's truth at all sides. So it's a complicated story. Tonight I just want to introduce you to a man named John Wycliffe. Uh Wycliffe uh, rose to prominence in the 14th century. He was a lecturer in theology at Oxford, became a theological advisor to the king. And the more he studied the scriptures, he was a very gifted, thought of as the smartest man in England. Uh, he, he, he would look at the scriptures and say, what I see in the scriptures is not quite what I see in the church. And he began to write about that, which is not the easiest or the smartest thing to do in medieval England. Uh, and one of the things that he decided he he saw in Scripture was a belief that the authority of the Word of God was greater than popes or councils. And, and he said, you know, if that's true, I think the people should be able to read the Word of God themselves. And so uh, this was something that uh, uh, no one had really believed at the time. They felt it was dangerous to let non-clergy read the Scriptures. So Wycliffe translated the New Testament into English, and began to send out priests two by two all over England uh, handing out uh, Bibles in, in uh, the native language. And this uh, infuriated people, but the people uh, loved it, that weren't in power. And the movement became known as uh, the Lollards. Well, Wycliffe's opinions were condemned, he was fired, his priests were arrested. After he died, King Henry IV passed a law permitting the burning of Heretics And the Lollards remained underground uh, until the Reformation, worshipping in, in secret. And uh, I've got a picture uh, that an artist drew. It's probably hard to see from there. But uh, the, the burning of heretics became a, a central part of life in medieval uh, villages. And uh, they, they would stack a huge uh, a bunch of uh, logs and, and hay wood and straw tied together. They would shave the head of the the victim to increase the humiliation. Uh, There would be an opening underneath so that the wind could get in and the fire wouldn't go out. People would come from miles around to watch, uh, and then a, a guard would keep a poker to keep the wood burning. One historian described it like this. He said, peasants would walk 30 miles to hoot and jeer, as a fellow Christian enveloped in flames, writhed and screamed his life away. Afterward, the most ardent spectators could be identified by their own singed hair and features. In their eagerness to enjoy the gamey scent of burning flesh, they had crowded too close. So at this point in history, that was kind of how they handled this this question of truth and, and unity. The church has always struggled with how to pursue oneness uh, and deal with theological disagreement. And at All Souls, we've been saying that this is how we will handle it. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non creedal issues. And so we've been going line by line through the Nicene Creed. And tonight we will begin uh, the third main phrase, which focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll pick it up again after Easter. And that phrase is this, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. You'll notice brackets there. We'll talk about why there are brackets there. Uh, A burning question I'm getting hundreds of emails about. Um, Who, with the Father and the Son, together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Now, if you've been uh, following along, one of the things you're going to notice immediately is that the The creed is structured in a Trinitarian way. We started off with our belief in the Father, we moved to our belief in the Son, and now we focus on our belief in the Spirit. And by the very way that the fathers framed the creed, they were saying each of these members is fully divine, each of these members is part of the community of the Holy Trinity. Um, and, And one of the things that they're doing at this point in the creed, if you've read ahead, you'll notice that... After talking about the Father as creator, the Son as redeemer, and the Spirit as the giver of life, they're going to move to the church, to us, and the church's mission in the world. And so the Holy Spirit is the link between Christ, the risen Christ, and the church's work in the world. And tonight, all I want to do is step all the way back and look at that phrase, I believe, or we believe, in the Holy Ghost ghost. Uh, That, of course, is an archaic word that that today is better translated as spirit, and that's how I'll refer to it the rest of the night. What really are we saying when we say we believe in the Holy Spirit? What are we saying? Uh, Some of the church's most powerful prayers express this Belief. Uh, listen to this and pray this with me. This 13th century prayer, it's called in Latin, Veni Sancti Spiritus, or Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, send forth the heavenly radiance of your light. Come Father of the poor, come giver of gifts, come light of the heart. Greatest comforter, sweet guest of the soul, sweet consolation. In labor, rest. In heat, temperance. In tears, solace. O most blessed light, fill the inmost heart of your faithful. Without your grace, there is nothing in us. Nothing that is not harmful. Cleanse that which is unclean. Water that which is dry. Heal that which is wounded, bend that which is inflexible, fire that which is chilled, correct what goes astray, give to your faithful, those who trust in you, the sevenfold gifts, grant the reward of virtue, grant the deliverance of salvation, grant eternal joy. Some of the most beautiful prayers we have, some of the best liturgy that we have, Our prayers invoking the coming of the Holy Spirit. But what really are we asking for? What are we saying that we believe in that maybe other folks uh, out on the mall per se or having lunch next door might not believe in? I think at the most basic level, what we're saying is that we believe there is help. Now, let me back up and explain that. One of the questions every human being has to ask and answer is this. Am I alone? Am I alone in the universe? Is is figuring out life and getting through life up to me? Or is there some kind of power that I can rely on? We all ask that question, whether articulately or not. Now, a fifth of Americans today no longer affiliate with a religious tradition. A third of them describe themselves as atheists or agnostics. This is a growing number, so much so that a college in California has has started an academic program in sociology and secular studies. In other words, what they mean is so many people are secularists now. So many people have concluded that the answer to the question of am I alone is yes that there's no one up there I can depend on, that it's become a kind of uh, American religion. And uh, one of the professors there, Philip Zuckerman, wrote a a book called Living the Secular Life. And it's all about how uh, America's secularists are finding meaning and purpose and coping with with life with, uh, in in other words, taking Lenin up on his bargain and imagining that there's no heaven. And Zuckerman interviews a young man named Luke. And Luke had become an atheist and his father died. And he asked him, how, how do you how do you cope with, with the death of your father when you don't believe in God? And then Zuckerman says, in Luke's experience, he didn't turn to God for comfort. Uh, he says, so that was really a test of my atheism when my father died. I mean, I was like, if this is true and there isn't a God, then I'll never see my dad again. He's not in heaven. And then Zuckerman says, but how did you really cope? And Luke says, friends and family, that's it. So, for a lot of people, uh, that increasingly is becoming their answer to the question of, am I alone in the universe? Uh, the answer is, well, there's no higher power out there, but I have you and you have me, and we will get through that together. Now, there's another way you can answer the question, and it goes something like this. Um I do think there is a God up there, and so I will offer sacrifices to him. I'll try to obey his laws in the hope that I keep him on my good side, and somehow the the karma works and everything will be okay in the end. And this was how most people in the Roman Empire thought about God at the time of the birth of the early church. Um, The Romans attributed their success to having good relationships with the gods. They had a a motto for their religion. It was called, I give that you might give. In other words, I make a sacrifice to you, God, so that you will give something in return to me. And they called these practices uh, religio, which is where we get our word religion. The, The root of the word means to bind again. And the idea was, that if you do certain rituals, if you come to services, you offer prayers, you give certain things, you will obligate the gods to take care of you. But if for some reason you don't do your, uh, your contract, then the gods will turn against you. And that was how most people in the Roman Empire thought about God at the time of Christ, as a religio, uh, a binding contract with an angry god. And when you think about it, uh, many Americans today approach God that way. Uh, there, there's some vague sense that there is a God. There's some vague sense that maybe at least on Easter I ought to show up and uh, that, I, that I ought to do some spiritual things. And, and hopefully if I do that, uh, my kids will turn out okay. Or uh, at least the mojo of the universe won't get all goofy on my behalf or something. But that's kind of how a lot of people think about it. Now... The early Christians talked about their relationship with God in a a remarkably different way. And one of the reasons I'm going to the background is just to I think we can become so familiar with this and we hear it so often and we say it so often, we don't understand how distinctive the early church's belief in the Holy Spirit really was. No one in the history of the world ever before and frankly ever since said what they said. And this was one of the reasons why the Roman Empire ultimately started to persecute them because it was so radical, so absurd, so countercultural that they felt it was undermining uh, the Roman experiment. For starters, the early Christians clearly identified themselves as worshippers of the one God of Israel. They called themselves the New Israel. And they also, as we've seen, they worshipped Jesus Christ as the Son of God sent by God into the world to rescue us. Now that alone was radical, but you could stop there and you wouldn't be that different from other religions. I mean, if you just looked at Jesus as a tremendous moral example who died a martyr's death, you could start a religion with that. A lot of religions started that way. Here's an example. In the year 680, the grandson of the prophet Muhammad, his name was Hussein, He he gathered his wife and 70 warriors. He rode north from Mecca into the desert. And everybody thought that Hussein was going to become the next leader of Islam. But a rival had risen up to power in Damascus. And he got 4,000 warriors together, rode out into the desert, slaughtered Hussein, his family, and the warriors that were with him. And that took place at a a city in what we call Iraq called Kerbalah. And the martyrdom of Hussein in the Karbala Massacre inspired the birth of the Shia branch of Islam, which makes up 10% of the Muslim population today. Today in Karbala, a golden shrine is erected in honor of the martyr. And every year, thousands of Shia Muslims visit Karbala in honor of its memory. That's how many Movements begin. A brave martyr dies. Followers come together to remember his example. That is not the claim of Christianity. The stunning claim of Christianity went something like this that Jesus Christ after being crucified, rose from the dead, walked the earth for 40 days, was exalted into heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit on the community of disciples he left behind, the Spirit-baptized community, which the Scriptures call the church, now carries on the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. Now, at this point, a lot of people who hear that for the first time uh, maybe haven't thought about it real deeply, will say, that's. I get that. I mean, a lot of people believe that. I, uh, maybe they might say, I read that in the book, The Secret. Uh, the Secret was a bestseller a few years ago. Claims that you can gain anything you want in life, wealth or health, perfect make, business success, by applying the law of attraction. The law of attraction says that your thoughts have a kind of divine power that you can bend reality through the power of your thoughts. So, if I think about becoming wealthy, I can become wealthy. If I think about getting married, I can become married. If I think about losing weight, I can lose weight. The author says, thoughts are magnetic and thoughts have a frequency. As you think, those thoughts are sent into the universe and they magnetically attract all the things that are on the same frequency. Everything sent out returns to the source and that source is you. Now that idea is deeply embedded in the American soul. We like it because it's a way of kind of hedging our bets. I can still have divine power without having to surrender anything to God. But that was not in any sense what the early Christians were thinking about. They were no stranger to the idea Of a Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, when they opened their Bibles and they read the first act of redemption, they met the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was barren with no form of life. It was under a roaring ocean covered with darkness. But the Spirit of God was moving over the water. So the very moment an early Christian opened his or her, well, they couldn't open it, but heard the Old Testament read, they encountered a God who created and a spirit, a ruach, a wind, a power, hovering over the world, creating and bringing life. And so they understood that God was somehow one and plural. Then they saw... The Father, who had given the Spirit to create, speak a word and call creation into being. So there in the first two verses of the Bible, you have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. The Spirit shows up again. He falls on prophets. Years later, Ezekiel says, or God says to Ezekiel, I will take away your stubborn heart, Israel. I'll give you a new heart and a desire to be faithful You'll have only pure hearts because I will put my spirit in you and make you eager to obey my laws and teachings. Jesus comes onto the stage. He's baptized in the spirit himself. He promises to pour out the spirit on the disciples. In the upper room, he promises to give them the paraclete the helper to his disciples, to guide them and reveal truth to them. After his resurrection, he makes them stay in the room in Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. Luke says like this, "...all the Lord's followers were together in one place. Suddenly there was a noise from heaven like the sound of a mighty wind. It filled the house where they were meeting. Then they saw what looked like fiery tongues moving in all directions." And a tongue came and settled on each person there. The Holy Spirit took control of everyone, and they began speaking whatever languages the Spirit let them speak. So the Holy Spirit comes and and enters these believers. Now, if you've studied uh, first century religions at all, you might say at this point, well, but wait a minute, weren't there other religions that claimed that the god would fill them and that they had some kind of experience with this other god. And isn't Christianity really just kind of copying these other ecstatic mystery religions? And you would be right. There are other examples in the first century. Uh, The cult of Dionysius, for example, uh, had worship services where you would come together. Typically, you would drink a lot of wine uh, then there would often be uh, sexual promiscuity. There would be a, a rhythmic drumming and dancing that would go late into the night. They would, they would dance around the idol of the god. And at the end of the night, uh, they would hope to be filled with the divine spirit and, and close to him. And there were a number of religions like that in the ancient world. So uh, aren't, we, aren't we just saying that Christianity is kind of the same thing? No, not at all. The early Christians described their experience of the Spirit of God in very different ways. They actually said that when God's Spirit, the God of Israel, filled them, He came in permanently. And that was an idea that no one had really thought about before. Paul put it like this, He says, you're no longer ruled by your desires. You're ruled by God's Spirit now, who lives in you. The early Christians also said that this power didn't just come into them to give them some ecstatic experience that resulted in drunkenness and and sex and forgetting their problems for a few hours, which is what the mystery religions did. Paul said that this Spirit the spirit of the God of Israel, the spirit of the Son of God, the spirit that created the world somehow would actually enter you and transform you and give you the power to live a life that reflected His character. Again, Paul puts it like this. If you're guided by the Spirit... You won't obey your selfish desires. God's Spirit makes us loving, happy, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. So the early Christians knew this person of the Holy Spirit. And that was another difference. They they knew Him as a person. Someone who had feelings. And someone who spoke. And someone who had a, a will. And they knew Him as a power who would come into their lives and reveal His will for them. And they talked about Him leading them, guiding them, convicting them, praying through them, comforting them, pouring out the love of God in their hearts. As a matter of fact, if there was anything that distinguished the early Christian from all the other religions, in addition to their beliefs, it would have been their experience of the life of God in them. It would have been their living by a divine power. That would have been the distinguishing characteristic. There's a a, a verse in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the second chapter where Paul says, These things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. We didn't receive the Spirit of the world. We received the Spirit who's from God that we might understand that things freely given by God, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So the belief in the Holy Spirit that was so central to to the early church was that the very mind of Christ that revealed the mind of the Father, the mysteries of all eternity, the very depths of the Trinity, somehow that wisdom is downloaded into the believer at conversion. Do you see how different that is from any other religion? And yet so often, I I think because it's hard to understand, we forget it And we essentially go back to religio. All right, here are a few religious things I'm going to do in the hope that God won't hurt me. That's such a different religion than Christianity. Now, one of the things that the the, the early Christians talked about that as far as I know, no one else talked about is... They talked about grieving the Holy Spirit. They talked about being in such a relationship with the Holy Spirit that they could live in a way that hurt his feelings. That was a way that no one in the ancient world ever would have thought about God. But that shows you how intimate this relationship was How personal it was. This was what they were experiencing. You know what it's like when you're in a close relationship with a friend or a a lover or a child, and you've gotten into conflict, and you know that you've grieved them. You can just feel it. Well, the early Christians believed that that was true with God, too. And some of you are experiencing that tonight. Some of us have experienced that this week. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You you, you know what it's like to experience the fullness of the Spirit's love and power and pleasure coursing through your life. You know what it's like to be led by the Spirit. And you also know what it's like to have grieved Him. You know what it's like to have walked away from Him. And this is why the early Christians talked about being filled with the Spirit. Because even though the Holy Spirit comes into the believer, we can grieve Him through our sins. And so over and over again we need to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So as we prepare for Holy Week, for the week in which we remember the price Christ paid to forgive us for our sins, for what he had to go through to get to the point where he could be glorified and pour out the Spirit on our behalf. I encourage you to to ask this question. And, And I do encourage you to try to find a special window of time each day this Holy Week, even if you can only do it for 10 minutes. And if you have no idea where to start, I encourage you to use a little app online called Pray As You Go. If, if you have no idea how to start or where to turn, uh, it's, it's one way. It's one easy way. It takes about 12 minutes. Pray as you go. But whatever you do this, this week, please take a few minutes each day and ask God to show you if you have grieved the Holy Spirit in any way. And then as you move towards Easter, pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pray that he will come into your life, cleanse you of your sins, and live Christ's life in and through you. Now one warning about that. Don't pray that prayer flippantly. I think in the spiritual realm, it's it's even more dangerous to pray for the filling of the Spirit and not really mean it than to not pray for the filling at all. And this is why I think Christianity is such a radical religion. If you pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit... You are surrendering every dream you have, every desire you have, every relationship you have. You're surrendering your sexuality. You're surrendering your money. You're surrendering your life. So don't pray that one on on the way home tonight. Think about it. Over the week. And I hope by Easter Sunday morning, when we celebrate the resurrection, you can truly pray with fear and trembling. And I do mean that. I think there should be a bit of holy terror about asking the Spirit of God to take over my life. That's why the Celtic Christians call the Spirit the wild goose. The wild goose goes places that you never know it will go. They're terribly hard to hunt because they're very unpredictable. Following the Holy Spirit like following a wild goose. Don't pray that prayer unless you're willing.